You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and encourage you to have your Bibles handy, have a pen handy, some notepaper, a journal. Kids, get your journals, get your kid sheets out, because there's some work for you to do and to follow along, and there's a, uh, things you can pick up and understand in this as well, because today we are going to tackle an awesome passage of Scripture with some um, that contains an amazing message to it as well as it contains some awesome promises and blessings for us it also uh, this passage today contains glorious doctrine and it can be wonderfully confusing this passage and that's the joy of preaching through books and expository preaching. You can't skip over stuff. You've got to go right through it. And so we're going to go through this passage here today. And yet this passage is so timely for us. This is a passage that, that, that I needed to be refreshed and reminded of this week, today. And I trust that you will as well. This study in 1 Peter has been so amazing. You almost would think that the Bible was written for us, hey? Like seriously, just how it impacts you on a daily, on a weekly basis. And how powerfully this book and this study in 1 Peter has met us as a church and, and us individually right where we're at and has been so helpful. So buckle up, Bible's open, pen's handy. Kids, again, get those sheets ready because we're going to get into this and uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 in a moment. Now there is something just absolutely wonderful about the thrill of victory. There can be such elation and such adrenaline and such, yes, when there's victory, when we experience that. Whether that's us on a sports team, or maybe in our, a few years ago, or when our favorite team wins and wins the championship, or maybe it's when you've worked and battled through a difficult class, an assignment, a test, an exam of some sort, or maybe there was a project at work or some sort of goal that you had to reach, and you worked so hard and you gave it all, and, and in the face of even difficult odds, you were able to pull it out, or your team was able to pull it out. Even in situations where you or others said, there's just no way this could ever happen, you defied the odds, and you pulled through. Now, I'm going to give an example of maybe not so necessarily some impossible odds, but some very interesting things. Uh, a nephew of mine in Regina went up against some pretty incredible odds recently. There's this restaurant in Regina that offers a free meal plus a $50 gift card to whoever can eat, and I think you'll see here, three pounds of pasta, um, or also to um, three pounds of pasta or three pounds, as well as three pounds of meat sauce and a loaf of bread in one hour. Now, my nephew is in the blue shirt on the right hand. They had one hour, three pounds of pasta, three pounds of meat sauce, and a loaf of bread in one hour, and both my nephew and his friend, they did it. And they even got posted on the wall of fame. And so not very many people have done that. And so they were elated with that. They were just, just thrilled. Uh, however, they were both relatively quite sick afterwards. 
Now, that might not necessarily be the victory that we're talking about um, and that what we're going after, but victory can be so awesome and so amazing. But if victory can be so amazing and so wonderful, devastating defeat can be just, I mean, on the opposite end of that. When you think and you believe and you hope that you will be victorious, that you made it or your team made it or whatever it might be, and then you have it snatched away from you. Have you ever had that experience? Well, in 2009, first time that I've been able to talk about it, um, my team, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, were playing in the 94th Grey Cup. And uh, they had a commanding lead going into the fourth quarter. However, in the fourth quarter, the opposition started to come back, and they were going on and uh, into victory. Uh, and it was a very close game, I guess you could say. And I was watching the game wearing this wonderful helmet with this wonderful little mullet at the church we were pastoring in Alberta with a bunch of men, and I was so celebrating and, and, and just getting ready. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm wearing this wonderful helmet and cheering on, had my jersey on, and there was a few other Ryder fans. And with five seconds left in the game, the opposing team lined up to kick a game-winning field goal, and they missed it. We won the game. We won the Grey Cup. There was such joy in your face. Oh, the celebration. I was getting ready to drive up and down the streets of the 3,000-person town that we lived in, honking my horn, go riders, all of that kind of thing. But then all of a sudden, we realized the worst nightmare was about to unfold. There was a penalty flag. My team had too many players on the field for that last play. It meant the opposition got to re-kick the field goal 10 yards closer, and victory was taken away. Absolutely, completely devastating. Not only was it for the team, was it devastating, but it sunk the province of Saskatchewan and Ryder Nation across this country into a long winter of depression. No one wanted to talk about it. Everyone just went dark. It was so discouraging. Now, whether it's experiencing victory or defeat, they will involve some of the highest of highs <clears throat> that we will experience, as well as some of the lowest of lows. Now, pasta eating and sports victories are one thing, but how about in the big areas of life? What about the things that really, truly matter? Lately, it seems, I don't know if you're like me in this, but I, I think I'm in pretty good company. It oftentimes seems like there lately has been more losing than winning. When it just seems like evil is winning on so many fronts. This past Thursday was just one of those days for many of us. I was involved in two funeral services. First time for me in ministry that that's happened. The first one was for Charlotte's aunt who passed away in Saskatoon unable to go. We recorded a funeral message at the church office, and, uh, and, and it was kind of interesting, and it was great to be able to do this. Now, Charlotte's aunt had a great sense of humor, and she would have just been so thrilled to know, I honestly believe this, that she would have been so thrilled to know that I was able to record the service like this. That's right, yes, pair of shorts and running shoes and hiked up socks. I, yeah, I, I mean, the family, we had a good chuckle over that. But 
it was also we were able to celebrate this dear aunt's home going. She was ready to go home to heaven. And then on Thursday afternoon, there were 50 friends and family members of Sandy Whale that were able to, to gather together and remember her life and give God thanks. And there was loss, and there was joy, and there was sorrow, and there was victory, and there was hope. And as a church, a little later on Thursday, we were also getting rather excited and prepared for more service gatherings on, on Sunday that would have been for today. And the West Kelowna group, by faith, was going to add a 11 o'clock service to their already uh, 9 o'clock service that they were having, just believing and trusting that the Lord would, they would invite and that the Lord would, would add to their numbers there, as well as another room was secured at the German club so that we could expand, uh, have two services going on, you know, meeting all proper guidelines and everything like that. And we are excited about just marching along with this mission. And then all of a sudden, the news came down from BC's top doctor that it's all shut down. Frustration, confusion. Let's face it, for a lot of us too, there's some fear involved in this. What's going to happen? Some anger. And trying to navigate all of a sudden again, well, what's next for us? What do we do now? What's next for us as a church? How much is this going to keep on going? And how does the mission of God continue to keep going on? Because that's what God calls us to do, to keep marching ahead, keep pressing forward. How do we do this? And again, this is still Thursday. This is all developing. And then later on, just into the early evening, we find out that there's a family in our church who gets the news of a nephew of theirs who overdosed, leaving a wife and two children. Heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. And then we have this evening of hope with the churches of the GCC where we gather online and some of them gathered in person in Oakville and, and hundreds, actually thousands of, of people across Canada, part of our network, joined in worship and prayer and testimony. Did you see those testimonies from those people from Quebec and what God is doing? It's so awesome to be able to hear that and see that. That service is available on our website. It's right on the front page at the bottom. You can click on there. Be sure to watch it. Watch it again. They worship. The, just, there, there's so much encouragement there. But it seems like oftentimes life is like a yo-yo. Just ups and downs and all over the place it seems. And church, I need to declare to you today that we have hope. And that we have a victory. That we have a victory that is secured, that is ours. And, and we have a victory that is certain, that can never be taken away, that can never be snatched, can never be lost on us. It is there. It is for us. We don't earn this victory. We receive it. And then we walk in it in our, our lives, in our relationship with God. And the very fact that we get angry... And I'm in this as well. The very fact that, that we get angry, that we get annoyed, that we get worried, we get upset by all that is happening around us. And again, I put myself into this along, if, if that's where you are at with the various developments that are going on. The very fact that we can allow our emotions to override even at times clear thinking and, and we just start lashing out and we get so frustrated and th say and think things in our head. It means that we are looking and trusting and hoping in the wrong places for our victory, for our joy, for our satisfaction. We're looking in the wrong places. 
Yes, we are to care for what is going on. We are to feel. We're, 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 we're emotional people and it's important. But we cannot and we must not allow ourselves to be ruined by all that's happening around us. We must get our eyes off of the peripherals and, and what is going on all around us here. And we need to have a supernatural gaze into what God is doing and, and see this in light of his word and in the truth. And so today, loved ones, I need to declare to you from God's word that Jesus wins, that Jesus gives his children the victory, that, that if he could take, if our God could take what is by far the greatest injustice, the greatest tragedy, the greatest conspiracy in human history, and that is the death of his son, his perfect, spotless, sinless son. And he could take that situation, take his suffering, take his death, and overwhelm that situation, and from that, bring forth the greatest good that this world has ever seen. If God can do that to the worst tragedy, to the worst event in the world's history, and cause the greatest good to come from that, the resurrection of Jesus, salvation, grace, mercy, life available. If he can overwhelm that situation, he can and he will do that no matter what it is that we face. Now Peter is writing here in chapter 3, the whole book, but but specifically here, he's getting into this and reminding, he's writing to Christians who are suffering. They're suffering growing and mounting persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them and he's reminding us here today in 2020 that there is victory in Jesus Christ. So let's read here in chapter 3 starting in verse 18. And it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Folks, this passage, the big idea the big truth here is victory is ours because of Jesus. And when we lose sight of hope in the midst of suffering and hard times, we need to look at these four truths that we see about hope's victory. We see that there is, is victory because of Jesus. I encourage you to write this down. There's victory over sin and death. There's victory over sin and death. Verse 18. Now, now verse 18 is just some glorious words and and a glorious verse of doctrine love to at some point preach a, a sermon series on the glorious doctrine the main tenets of the christian faith 
But here's one of them here. Look at verse 18. I'll read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What a verse this is. This is a verse of just so full of promise. This core doctrine in the Christian faith. And what is that core doctrine? I encourage you to write this down. The penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to write down that verse in Romans 3.23. There, there's other verses that go along with this, but this is just one of them. I encourage you to look that up. Now, the word penal means penalty. That Christ paid the penalty that was coming for us, that, that was owed because of our sin. That there was a penalty, there was a cost to our sin. And, and that penalty is death. Eternal separation away from God. And Jesus Christ died in our place, becoming the perfect substitute. So we see the word penal, we see the word substitutionary. Jesus became that perfect substitute for us, having committed no sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. His sacrifice on the cross atoned and covered and paid for our sins. So we see the atonement in there, which is a covering over. His blood, his death covered over our sins, the penalty paid in full because of Jesus. He suffered and died once for all. It was once for all time. The righteous for the unrighteous. He is the righteous one, we are the unrighteous one. So that we could be brought into right and proper standing before God. This is what is also oftentimes referred to as the great exchange. The great exchange, and, and we see that detailed in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I believe it will be on the screen. And it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. Just, just look at that. It's so, so good to see that, isn't it? So amazing. Him who, who knew no sin became sin so that we could have Christ's righteousness exchanged to us. I love the way Pastor Ray Pritchard explains this. He, he, he explains it this way. Let's say that you have been diagnosed with the worst of the worst viruses or illnesses or disease, and there's no treatment for it. And you are told because of it, you don't have long to live. But then someone comes into the hospital room and offers to you to take it all away. This person comes in and says, I will be able to remove the entire disease out of your body. What is going to kill you can be removed from you and take every bad cell and replace it with good and healthy cells. You say, I'm in. I'll do it. But then he goes on to explain. And by undergoing this procedure, you will become completely healed. However, all the unhealthy disease cells would be transferred to this other person. What was killing you would now be killing that person. Folks, that is an illustration, an example of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He took our sin. He took what was killing us that was going to separate us for eternity from God and he took that upon himself and he took it and he died in our place. And when he did that, he put death to death. The cross, Good Friday, looked like a loss. It looked like a defeat for Jesus and for the kingdom of God. And no doubt the demons of hell were rejoicing. 
They were having a party. We got them. They were celebrating. They, 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 they were no doubt just, victory was theirs. But then Easter Sunday came. Easter Sunday came. And sin and death were conquered. And the victory belonged to Jesus. And so we rest in that truth. The second truth that we can rest in and we can celebrate and we need to, to, to own as our own is that there is victory over Satan and demons. Look at the last part of verse 18. We'll pick this up and into 19 and 20. It says, Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now this is where this text becomes beautifully complicated. Beautifully because there has been much, much discuss, discussion and conjecture for centuries on this. A great debate on this, on this passage and many different interpretations. I, I love what Martin Luther had to say about this. Look at this quote from Martin Luther. He says, A wonderful text is this, and more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. He's like, I have no clue what Peter's getting at here. No clue at all whatsoever. And, and, and the reason why there's debate and confusion is, first of all, um, what is this all about? Who did Jesus preach to? When did Jesus preach and proclaim to the spirits in prison? Where did he go to preach this? To hell? To Hades? Where, from from, from you know, the top of the universe? Where did this happen? And what did he proclaim? And, and this past week, um, I was doing, actually for the last two weeks, not having to preach last week, was already starting to prepare because I'm like, whoa, this is kind of an interesting part of First Peter here. And one thing I found out is that there are over 180 different interpretations for this text. I didn't study all of them, I'll be honest. I studied a number of them. And, uh, and, and yet, I'm not going to go through um, an awful lot of them. I'm going to tell you kind of where I land on this. And you're free to land somewhere differently because there is much conjecture on this. But I want to give you some guidelines for studying difficult passages of Scripture. And the first guideline for studying difficult passages of Scripture is humility. We need to have a humble approach when it comes to studying God's Word. It's never a good idea to be walking around or boasting around and thinking, well, I've got this all figured out. I've got a corner on the information of what God's Word says here. I mean, some passages are very clear, but when it comes to difficult passages, come, come to it with humility. Come to it with a, a, a sense of prayer and careful study. And then even as you respond and as you share about it, it's like, here's what I think based on careful study, prayer, on God's Word. So, humility. Another guideline is understand the context. That's very important that we understand the context. That the audience, understand the audience, the message, the theme of the book. Look at the verses before it and afterwards. In fact, in this situation, the entire book of 1 Peter and, and, and even other portions of Scripture. Because remember, and we've said this before, context is king. We need to know the context in which it's written. And then thirdly, let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
Now, some texts of Scripture, some verses are more clear than others. So, so take a text on, a, on certain subjects that are clear and interpret the less clear passages from the ones that are more clear. Does that make sense? This is doing a thorough study of God's Word in this regard. And so Scripture interprets Scripture. And then fourthly, seek to understand authorial intent. intent. Under, try to understand what the author, what is the main message? What is he getting at? What is the overall message being communi- communicated? Or in other words, what is the big idea of this text or of this passage? Now, now again, this is a fascinating study. And, and again, I don't have all the answers or the definitive, I've got this figured out, because I don't. But I, at least I know I'm in good company knowing that I don't have it all figured out. But I want to kind of share with you a little bit of just where I land as well as a few options that, that are involved in this. First of all, when did Jesus preach? As it says here, when did he proclaim to the spirits in prison? Well, some would possibly say, and this again, I don't know for sure. It was, some will say somewhere between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Some believe it was at his ascension is when he proclaimed to these spirits. Another one, where did he preach? Where did he go? Did he descend into hell? There are those that believe that he descended into hell, or did he go to Hades, which is kind of a holding place for spirits until the the final judgment. They're already doomed, but waiting for the final judgment where they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Or to whom? To whom? Did he proclaim? And this is where it gets very interesting. Who were the imprisoned spirits that we read about here? In verse 20, it says, Peter mentions these spirits. He says, these spirits who did not obey in the time of Noah. Well, if all of a sudden he's discussing Noah here, this is going to take us to Genesis chapter 6, where he is talking about this. And so we, uh, instead of you turning to it, you can write down the reference, but here it is up on the screen, and it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, it, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in the daughters of the man, and they bore children to them. And you're like, whoa, what is all this about? Now, the word the sons of God, in the Old Testament, these are references to the spiritual realm. And here in this situation, he's referring to those in the demonic realm, the fallen angels, the ones who with Lucifer were good angels at one point, but decided to follow Lucifer, who was one of the archangels, and decided to follow him, and, and, and they became demonic spirits. And, and here now in Genesis, early on, after creation, the earth was still quite young, uh, there was some bizarre conduct that was going on in, in the world. You think things were bizarre then? It was bizarre then as well. Um, today, as well as back then. These demons invaded the bodies of men, cohabitated with women, 
and involve them in demonic, perverted sexual activity, making some weird kind of hybrid human, demon, humans. But as you keep reading in Genesis chapter 6, with all of this craziness and chaos going on in the world, the next verses tell us that God determined that they had gone too far. And God promised that he would destroy the earth with a great flood and he would start over. And for 120 years, as Noah built the ark, he called people to repentance, to turn to God, warning them that if they did not turn, that judgment was coming. God, he's like, enough of this. We're going to wipe everything out. And he gave 120 years for people to respond. And God indeed did judge. God did indeed flood the earth. And only eight survived Noah's family. Now, now the Bible teaches us that that there are demons that are running around loose on this earth. That's very true. The spiritual realm is very real. It's happening even today. But there are also some demons that are bound, that are bound in Hades, that are bound by God, that they are not being able to be loosed. And all the demons, whether loosed or free, they know that, they're, that the end is coming for them. They know that they will all be bound and then thrown into the lake of fire forever. And it is believed that it is to these bound demons that were on the earth in Genesis chapter 6 were the ones that Jesus preached to. Somewhere between his death, his resurrection, or even at his ascension. Now, This is painting it all with a very broad stroke. We're not digging deep into this. But you know, I can't help but to think that for a time, as I've already stated, that there was a party going on with the evil spirits as the news traveled that Jesus died on the cross. A a party of just demonic proportions, I guess you could say. Because they had won. They figured that Jesus was dead. But somewhere in there, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he proclaims, I'm alive. And he proclaims to be victorious. And Jesus declares to them, I win, you lose, your time is coming. And you know, we know that something like this did happen because Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, verses, again, at the bottom of the screen, it says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so Jesus, at some point, He's triumphed and He's, he's put them to open shame where He's like, look, I'm alive. Death is defeated and your end is coming. Okay, so, so what's the point of all of this? Well, there are many, but here's the one main truth. Here's the one important message. Here's the take-home. Here's the big idea from this passage. And, and it, it, regardless of your views on this passage, here it is. Jesus triumphs over his enemies. Jesus wins. Jesus triumphs. Even over the worst of the worst, they will lose to Jesus. And for you and me, this gives us hope because no matter, no matter what comes our way, no matter 
What happens if you are in Christ? Jesus will have the final say in your life, not the circumstances, not the evil that is going on around you, but Jesus. Keep looking to him. Continue to keep trusting in him. And it's all very interesting that Peter here uses Noah as an example. Because you think about it, Noah, when you read the story of him building the ark, he's laughed at for building the ark. He's mocked and he's ridiculed. He's a crazy person. When he calls people to repent and fall upon God's grace, no one does. And yet Noah believed. And he believed in God when no one else would. And as a result, God's grace came upon Noah and his family and they were saved. That's so important to remember. And here's the point point that Peter's getting across to us. That we may and we will, we will suffer here on this earth. You're going to suffer if you're in Christ or if you're not in Christ. We're all going to suffer, but are you going to suffer with Christ or without him? We're all going to suffer. It's not a matter of if, it's when. That will happen. And in our suffering, we may endure hardships, maybe mockery, ridicule, coming persecution. At times it might seem that you're missing out on all the fun because you are deciding and choosing to follow Jesus. At times it feels like you're losing or you're a loser in the the eyes of others, that you're crazy. But do not lose hope because God judges all wickedness and he will have the final say. And that is, it's better to be persecuted made fun of, to be left out than to go, even better than experiencing the earthly pleasures, far better to go without all of that than to be numbered with the many who will be headed towards eternal judgment. We are safe with Jesus and there is victory over Satan and all the evil forces that will come your way that are in this world. Thirdly, we declare Christ's victory in baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to to this, um, verse 21, you can follow along. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, now, is is Peter saying here, it almost looks like, is he saying that baptism is what saves you? Well, we don't believe that. Some people do. That's called regenerational baptism, that in order to be truly saved, you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, but you're not truly saved until you're baptized. But that would not be consistent with the whole of Scripture. And Peter doesn't believe that. And in fact, he even tells us why in, in verse 21. He, he goes on to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He doesn't see baptism as being the, the, the thing that saves and that removes the dirt. You see, baptism as we get to see it and celebrate it often in Lake Okanagan, had a number of great uh, baptism opportunities and services down at the lake this summer. Baptism is an outward expression of a change that has taken place inwardly. And that change happens, as it says in verse 21, out of an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's how we're saved. Because what... An appeal to God for a good conscience. That's repentance when we repent. When we come to the point and say, I'm done. I'm sick of my sin. 
I'm tired of the guilt, the accusation, the emptiness, the fear, the loneliness, the the burden of sin that I've been carrying all my life. I want a clean conscience. And you cry out to God, not for an outward washing, but for an inward cleansing that is available through Jesus Christ. Then you see, water baptism becomes a declaration of an inner cleansing, a symbol, a way that we identify with Jesus. And it's a command for all followers of Christ. We are to take a stand for Christ. He took a stand for us. We are to take a stand for him. And not just in the waters of baptism, but throughout our lives. We are to stand for Jesus. And we identify with Christ in baptism. As one goes under the water, it symbolizes Jesus' death, Jesus' burial. And then coming up out of the water symbolizes and celebrates Jesus' victory, his resurrection and the new life that we have. The water is a symbol of of impurities, the sin that has been washed away through the blood of Christ. And baptism is a picture of this in such a beautiful way. It's our identification with Christ. It is a declaration of a decision that you've made to follow Christ. It's a declaration of your desire to live for Christ and faithfully follow Jesus until he calls you home. Remember, baptism doesn't save you, but it shows that you are committed to Christ. It's basically saying, I'm serious. I'm no more faking. I'm in. I'm all in. And it's a pledge of obedience to him. And if you have not yet been baptized, I encourage you, even today, do it right now. Fill out an online connection card on our website, and we will walk with you through some studies and some scripture in learning and understanding more about this important command. And some way, somehow, we'll figure out a way for you to get baptized. But I encourage you to get moving in this if you have not been baptized as a believer in Christ. And then fourthly and finally, we anticipate Jesus' final victory. Hope's victory is about anticipating the final and the complete victory that is yet to come. The whole point of this passage is clarified here in verse 22. Some of what we've talked about here today, it's confusing. It's kind of like, oh, what's, what's going on here? But the primary message and declaration, it is not confusing. That is very clear. And in verse 22, it's talking about Jesus. It says, has gone, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And here it is. Jesus has gone into heaven and is sitting today at the right hand of God. Sin, death, angels, authorities, power, all having been subjected to him. Just take a look at this picture here that you'll see. You'll see the, the humiliation to the exaltation of Christ. And we see Christ, the pre-incarnate glory, he has always been, but then the incarnation that is Christmas, that is him coming to earth, that is what we're getting ready to celebrate, his earthly life, we see that in the Gospels, but then we see, and that's all about his humiliation, right to the crucifixion, the humiliation of Christ, God coming to this earth, humbling himself before us to be able to save us, and, and we come to the crucifixion, and then we move up to the exaltation. We experience, we celebrate his resurrection and then his ascension. And where are we at today? Where he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And what are we anticipating, folks? The second coming. And we'll get to that a little bit later here in First Peter, Lord willing. And then the future reign 
of Christ and that all of his children from all the ages celebrating in victory with him. That is what we look forward to. You see, our humiliation, our humbling ourselves before Jesus Christ and surrendering our lives to him, and no one can come to Christ any other way, will result in our one day exaltation. What a day that will be. The same that was true for Jesus. His humiliation resulting in his exaltation will be ours as well. As we reign and rule and worship and celebrate and explore new heavens and new earth one day. A joy beyond compare. That's where the victory is. If you have trusted in Christ, you have no reason to fear Anything that can happen happen to you. Suffering will not have the last word in your life. Jesus will. We may be like Noah. We may feel like we're in a small minority in a hostile world. But we can be bold in our witness and confident that our future hope is secure. Let's pray together. God, we are just so thankful for the power of sin and death that has been defeated. We are so grateful that you have done this by sending your son to this earth. You defeated sin, Satan, and death. The power of the enemy has been disarmed. And we can belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Though we can and we will suffer, but we also one day reign. We may get struck down, we may be perplexed, we may be frustrated, but we won't be destroyed. And I pray that for anyone who does not know Jesus Christ personally today, that today would be the day they would surrender themselves, humble themselves before you. Lord God, wherever they're watching from, wherever they're listening from, and surrender their lives, receiving the forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and believing it by faith, that their unrighteousness will be transferred over to Jesus and his righteousness will be transferred over to them. God, would you do that today? For those discouraged, those who have been running away from you, would we get running back to you? Would we celebrate and remember this great victory that we have in Jesus Christ? And when worry and when anger and when anxiousness starts setting in our lives, would we remember this week, Jesus wins, Jesus wins, Jesus wins. All to the glory of God. And oh, may we as a church rejoice in the confident life that he is preparing for us and that would give us confidence each day that we are here on this earth. And even now, in this moment, wherever we are, would we worship And would we give thanks to our great God for the great things that he has done.